it takes over 240 hours to brew the perfect pint of Guinness. Milling, mashing and roasting to unlock intense flavor, a smoother taste and the distinctive look. Time well spent. Will you settle for ordinary? Or do you strive to be made of more? The Guinness site really was a privileged occasion for understanding work and organization in the 20th century. I think it brings up so many questions about how we think about work and embeddedness of work over the years. Imagine a workplace where workers enjoy a well-paid job for life, one where they could start their day with a pint of stout and a smoke and enjoy free meals and silver service canteens and restaurants. During their breaks, they could explore acres of parkland planted with hundreds of trees and thousands of shrubs. Imagine after work, a place where employees could play more than 30 sports or join one of the theater groups or dozens of other clubs. Imagine a place where at the end of a working life, you could enjoy a company pension from a plan to which you had never contributed a penny. Imagine working in buildings designed by an internationally renowned architect whose brief was to create a building that would last a century or two. This is no fantasy or utopian vision of work but a description of the working conditions enjoyed by workers at the Guinness Brewery established at Park Royal in West London in the mid-1930s. In 2005, the brewery closed after seven decades of production. Tim Strangleman spent the last six months of the brewery's life working with a photographer to record in words and pictures the site before it closed. Subsequent research revealed an incredibly rich story of corporate cultural change and the transformation of work and the workplace. Strangleman, professor of sociology in the School of Social Policy, Sociology, and Social Research at the University of Kent, Canterbury, drew on material from his book Voices of Guinness, an Oral History of the Park Royal Brewery, for the October 5th edition of Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lives, the lecture series sponsored by the Michigan Traditional Arts Program and the Education Program at Michigan State University. In his Zoom talk excerpted on today's show, Strangleman reflected on what that story tells us about work meaning, identity, and organizational life in the second decade of the 21st century. And on today's Labor History in Two, the year was 1940. That was the day that the federally mandated 40-hour work week went into effect for U.S. workers. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Hope you enjoy it. Here's the show. Really, what I want to do is give you a kind of bit of a background to the project um, and the book and just think about what happens when uh, we do listen to the voices of Guinness. This project really is, 
is kind of an example of how you can use one site to tell a wider story about work, what people think of it, how it's organized and how it changes over time from paternalism through to neoliberalism. So, and I also talk about, I don't know if you've got the concept in um, the US of ley lines, it's kind of almost semi-mystic where um, certain things are on energy lines. Um, and I've not gone all kind of crazy here, but basically what astounds me is just how this one brewing site is the epicenter of so many things. If you wanted to take particular moments in the last 80 years about work and organizations, Guinness is almost the ideal example of it. So what I'm trying to do is tell the story of work in the 20th and 21st century. And I also wanted to do a story of one type from pre-cape grading to post-grade. I'm interested in deindustrialization, but it's kind of only one hand clapping if you don't then talk about the workers and the work that went on on there. So site was set up again. Interestingly, they decided to set up the Guinness Brewery in London because of the fallout of the Anglo-Irish trade war. So Ireland is separated from Great Britain in 1921, but Fianna Foyle headed by Eamon de Valera in Ireland that threatened to remake on some of the agreements that be made in 1921. This set up a trade war and it's secret Guinness decided to build a London brewery so that they would be subject to tariff. And they did it in secret, both to not scare the Irish government, but also to not inflate land prices in London. They built this huge brewery in secret. So no one knew what it was for. They thought, um, they put rumors around that it was an armaments factory making explosive potatoes. Uh, a bicycle factory and, and even the architect Charles Gilbert Scott didn't know quite what the purpose of the building was. He was given the broad outline and then he had to design it. Uh, Charles Gilbert Scott is one of the premier architects of the day. He's the president of the Royal British Institute of Architects. At the time he's building Park Royal. He's also better known for Red Telephone Box, a Liverpool Cathedral and a Bankside Power Station. I power. So if you go to London, Bankside Power Station is now taken. Um, on huge, fantastic tribute to him, but he built two power stations in London and Battersea has just been come up now into like three flat. So Hugh Bieber, who himself is an interesting person on when Giles Gould was died in 1960, he wrote the obituary in Guinness time. And he said about the building, he said, the board decided that we wish to have a building that would outlive tastes the moment, something that would not attempt to hitch onto the latest mode or set a new pattern, but would not try to seem anything else than a large efficient built firmly and solidly to last a century or two the company itself would already last it so guinness uh, was founded in 1759 so by this time it's 200 years but i love the idea we'll come back to this but i love the idea that capitalism capital builds something and you're not specific about how many centuries it's going to last now put this in perspective guinness in dublin has an 8,000 year lease on its land. Guinness thinks in long back. Um, J.B. Priestley starts out his English journey and he goes past the site of the brewery. So again, this one of the, so as a lot of people are aware, but J.B. Priestley is one of the kind of really important English uh, writers about state of the nation. He goes through depression, England, um, and he starts his journey by motor coach um, out to Southampton, passes all this new development, ribbon development, going on outside London of the new industries. And he's quite 
funny about the industries he's finding. He's really accusing it of being quite American because he's from the north of England. So he said he's looking out the coach window and he said, after the familiar muddle of the West London, the Great West Road looked very odd. Being new, it did not look English. We might suddenly have rolled into California, but that's a throw to the, to the Americans here. And what I've, I don't know the exact date, but I, I speculate this could well have been the very day when in secret, the Guinness company family directors crawl underneath the fence to inspect their potential site. So he could well have been looking out. I like to think he's looking out the window, looking at two well-dressed gentlemen crawling underneath a fence to look at this, um, again, this kind of, um, privileged occasion. What eventually they build is this beautiful industrial site, but they decide to landscape it, not because they have to, but because they want to, and they plant a thousand trees and 3000 shrubs, and they lay out this huge area and they, in the archive, there's enough, um, a debate about how much land they will buy in order to produce this parkland. And now this debate between what they call the parkites and the anti-parkites. And, but they're re they're really having a debate, not do they want a great garden, but how big is this garden going to be? And the gardens aren't simply laid out. They're, they're properly designed. And later on, they employ one of the most famous landscapers, um, of the 20th century, Jellicoe, who's inspired by Jungian philosophy. I won't, won't go into that, but they also, they employ one of the best arboralists, uh, you know, people who know about trees, uh, in Britain at the time. So these are not simply thrown to get or displanted. They, they really think about their grounds and I'm just interested in that and, and it, I come back. So one of the things I'm trying to give you a flavor of the magazine, like in this time, and it's not simply the kind of magazine you would get now. There's really creative writing going on here and they, and, and what they're actively trying to do is imagine a community into existence. And they're talking here about the annual fate really they have. And, um, I said a part where we play cricket, beautiful surround the setting. And in a few seasons in which the club has been functioning, it became a fair measure of success. In spite of the fact that the background is distinctly modern and trains on the Piccadilly line emerge noisily from behind the kitchen garden, there's sufficient pace and leafliness, leaviness in the trees to give a rural aspect. It requires only the merest white plants to find the blacksmith, butcher, and possibly even the curate from amongst the engineers and accountants. So there, I talk about this idea of imagined village and there's a book by that name and, and it, it's, it's really is trying to conjure up the rural, but never shying away from this is quite an urban setting. There's various times it's described as a machine, the garden, a factory. And so this is quite common, but there's a annual Christmas party for all the, all the workers there. So a lot of the socials are set on the campus of the brewery and there's dozens and dozens of pictures and include films of the Christmas. So talking about the same event and the says the editor says four o'clock brought the satisfying time, the interval of being cricket, satisfying other work and either join seat, seat, uh, the T10, listen to the band or sort around the various tools without feeling that any, uh, that one may be missing some vital part of the program, but one saw it's possible for a small charge satisfy a long satisfied frustrated motion desire to throw things at China in the house. So that's, and if you have that in America, but it's actually great. It's a, we were just coming out of a war, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, elsewhere there's darts, bowling and many other attractions that comprise the fun of the fair. So again, they're imagining this community as a village.
And I think it, 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 the workforce is about 1500 people, which is around the size of a kind of typical village, um, where well, I would know everyone. So, um, what you've got here is that, and this is the kind of side view you can see it's built on a, a slope and that aids in the fall of the brewery through the process from a storehouse through to brewing and then racking in the front is a market garden and that supplied all the food and vegetables canteen. I'll come onto the cows in a minute in front of, in between the garden. And then the, there's the open space. That's the sports ground. There are 30 odd sports that were done on the part row. Also Roger Bannister, who was the first man to break the four minute mile, um, practice the four minute mile on that site. Also the Guinness book of records was conceived of by two Guinness directors walking across that, that um, site. So then you've got this coming together of these amazing things, these amazing coincidences. Back to the photos. So they show all sorts of things, the division of labor is, I think this is a, a copper bed and his mate. So it shows the division of labor, skilled and unskilled workers. Like many sites, Guinness was a fully integrated. Everything was done on site apart from the photography. Everyone was in directly employed by Guinness. So you had, you will see some of the things they did, but. Um, like many plants, like I know in the States, they had their own, um, power station they had their own fire brigade. They had their own ambulance brigade. They include this picture partly to show you, this is workers being paid, I think on a Friday paid in cash. So you can see some of them have got their wage envelopes. Also, you can see the cropping marks here. This was a photo that was used in the second issue is a quarterly staff magazine Guinness time. And this was, this was showing, this is showing the cropping marks. The, the point of the photo is to show in the second issue of Guinness Times workers buying Staff Magazine, the first issue of the Staff Magazine. So this is kind of, I, I like the kind of different levels of which this work. What you also got here is the free beer that they would have got every day. I think they got a quart of beer every, which is two and a half pints, I think. And so they got that free, but they had to drink that on them on premise or is in the book about that. And this is a picture of the workers then having bought the magazine. They sit down waiting for their silver service lunch to be brought to them by a waitress, a waiter service. So Guinness had six or seven restaurants for the different grades of workers here, but each one of them silver service, even the shop or workers. I'll come to talk about that. Also the, um, Lord Iver, who is one of the directors of Guinness, had a, a prize-winning dairy herd, and there was a dairy on site that produced all the milk for the for the workers and what have you. So, if you imagine Guinness Time as a magazine to stop in um, 1975, so in many ways, up until the story I've told now, represents what would be recognisable in the US, the UK many parts of Europe. So Guinness for lots of reasons starts to get into financial trouble in the 1970s for lots of reasons, which I can go into. And when I say it is kind of a privileged occasion, if, um, you wanted to pinpoint one financial scandal in the 1980s of insider trading and the trading in shares, the Guinness scandal would, the Guinness affair is variously known would be the one you would point to. It, it was the expansion of Guinness from a company that made beer into a global multinational. And basically that was done off the back of leverage, financial leverage and, um, insider trade deal, you know, the price 
And this is Ernest Song, who was the chief executive who was responsible for that. And he, he took over, he started taking over whiskey brands that were actually bigger than Guinness, but used financial leverage then do the So this is, tells the story of the stock market in the UK and where in the 1980s. So again, this is part of it. And we now fast forward to 2004, and these are the photos that were taken by David McKelly, the photographer um, who I worked with. And I just talked briefly about the difference in the photography. I let David do whatever he wanted, but it's very interesting, but the picture tells a story. So these are two women who for 29 years worked for Guinness, and then they were outsourced about six months before the um, club announced that it was going to close. So they lost all their pension, right? But they were still working on site for the outsourced company. So some of the male workers walked away with very, very generous settlements. These women would have away with much after 29 years. When I was working on site, I said to the manager that I'd like to interview all the people, in the and including uh, the cleaners. And he said to me, why do you want to, why do you want to interview the cleaners? They're not Guinness work. And whereas the pictures from the 1940s and 50s told the story that they were poor Guinness work by the 2000s, these weren't, and these were migrant laborers from, um, Portugal and Poland. And they actually, I don't think they actually spoke English. So it was a, it's a real interesting story about counters or workforce. The logistics on site was weekly done by outsourced workers. So at the end, there are rather than 1500 workers, there's still a lot of workers on site, but there are only core of about 80 Guinness workers. Everything else is outsourced. So again, this is where you tell the story of what work. So whereas everyone had had similar conditions and service contracts. By the end, everything is out. You have a core set of workers who are pretty privileged, but then you have everyone else who's on sort of temporary contracts. The logistics run has gone past. The, the um, power station has been outsourced to Enron. We all know what happened there. So this is the entirety of a Guinness workforce that would be on duty at any one time. And I think there are about 13 staff here, all male of a certain age. It's quite an aging work at the end. And they would work 12 hour shifts on four days off, um, patterns. Then it tells the story of what's happened to work. And, um, the end of the factory was quite a stimulus. It revealed a lot about what people felt about work. And this is one guy who'd worked for Guinness for over 30 years. And he was talking about his son and he had two sons both of whom had gone to university, he'd been proud of, had settled down, had worked for Nestle, been an engineer. The other one had been, he'd got his degree and then he skipped in and out of work six months here, went traveling six months a year, then went traveling again. And he said, you know, I really felt my other son was doing the right thing, um, working for a corporate like I did. But then his son gets made redundant almost the same time as he does. So he's, he's talking about his son that was the one that worked for Nestle as an engineer. He said that his experience of his son, I suppose is the same as mine a bit earlier. He did 11 years at Nestle and they'd do, be doing almost what we've been doing, uh, which is cutting numbers year after year. So he was made redundant in February this year. We talked about it a fair bit because Nestle, again, 
even then you, uh, there was a culture of you join the company, uh, and you not quite stayed forever, but you were in it and that was it. So what, what he's having to do here is think about changing his way of almost telling his kids what to do, telling his sons what to do. And he talked about the other one he said, so yes, I've had quite long conversations with them, but one thing's I've tried to encourage them is not is do is not quite get stuck in the groove. Robert's been forced to think about that because he's made redundant for Nestle with Steve, his other son. It's the other thing. I wish he would stay a little longer in it with each company. Yes, we talked about work. We talked about redundancy. But what he's coming round to is um, certainly a reappraisal of his son's attitude work. He's now seeing his son, who was a bit all over the place, as probably having the right attitude of not getting tied down, of actually, ironically, having a better CV than his more stable brother. But at the same time, it's revealing of his own attitudes to work, of why you would actually embed yourself in one firm. And I asked them, would you really miss Guinness? This is before the closure. And this guy in particular said, um, if you'd asked me that five years ago, I would have said yes, but not now, because he'd been through three or four rounds of redundancy and having to reapply for his job. And he said at the end, it's partly age, but it's also partly, I haven't got the mental energy to reapply for my job again. So he was able to cognitively, just cognitively to sort of step aside from his work. And then another worker said, I mean, from Ireland, my parents would have idolized the world, or word Guinness, the great revelation in Ireland, as well as it over here. I I would recommend Guinness to anyone. I didn't like the change to Diage. And also I've learned that if you're in a comfort zone, be very careful because it might not last for too long. I've learned a lot here over 35 years. If I say to my kids, I could give them one reasonable piece of advice, it would be never become complacent because if you do, you'll be in. So this is the kind of workers who've experienced the stability of the long boom and then get thrown into this kind of round of redundancy. And they're having to think about their own working lives, but also those of their kids. The destruction of the brewery was very controversial. Guinness announced it was going to end production. The buildings were historically important and there'd been attempts to what we call list, which is to kind of preserve them. But Diageo avoided that. And then they had put down the significance of the building and the significance of Charles Goodwood, Scott's involvement. And again, the buildings become part of, they become a character in this story. So again, it's that kind of privileged occasion. They speak to the attempts to preserve industrial heritage in the UK. There's a wonderful photo of the premier architectural of, in Britain is dead now, um, sadly. And under his arm is Nicholas Pevsler's Guide to Architecture in Britain. And those buildings were mentioned as architecturally important. And then the Diageo record. So the destruction makes national headlines. There's clippings I've got press about the disclose it. What's interesting is that Diageo denied the Giles Goodwood spot. He was just a consulting architect, not the main architect, you know, and they, they'd been proud of his association, but all of a sudden it become a bit up there. But also the demolition itself elicits memory and problem. Um, so, um, I'm talking, um, to the workers about what they feel when the place is going to be closed down or destroyed. And they say that the buildings, they're like ghosts, they're empty, being empty. They were actually beautiful buildings when they fall because everything was copper and brass and it was all clean and shiny because it was the way it was kept, you know, polished up. 
being the brew house as it is now, an empty shell with nothing in there, it's dead finished. So no, I won't be sad to see them go like um, that, but I'm sad they're empty and the vessels. And I took pictures of the demolition, but someone had been inspired by the um, website at the time. If you worked for Diageo, the corporate headquarters is actually built on that sports ground I was telling you about. And in his lunchtime, this guy who works in the quarters would go over and take pictures far closer than I could have got of the place um, being pulled down. The place took six months to be uh, pulled down because it was so well built. Uh, and this is Adrian, the guy I was telling you about, talking about his experience of photographing. And so he loved those buildings, even though he'd only breathed worked in them. He said they, the machines, they chomped and chomped. The machines, I compared them to dinosaurs. They sort of went in and grabbed and grabbed and crushed, but pushed and pushed and pushed. I was getting closer and closer. And the guy that I was with the, from the demolition companies, come back, get back. We're going to get hit by something. And the whole sort of thing went down, wow. And then the, I, I got this kind of symmetry of the images of the place being built in the 1930s and then being pulled down in 2006. And this guy, Terry Aldridge, had taken photos in the farm. He'd left there. He worked there from 1975 to 1995. So five years before the building was, was closed. Then he goes back. He lives about a hundred miles from the site and he's in his seventh um, and he drove up to the site to take some pictures of the place being pulled down. And I said to him, well, did you do it? Um, and he said, curiosity, I suppose I can't help but go back there. You worked there for all those years and you just, it's funny. I wouldn't go back and see Nazis. That's the car company. That's where he used to work. A place be demolished. And they did demolish that building. No, it was something about the brewery, the people in it, the work, the camaraderie, all the people you work with, you couldn't help but go back. It's almost the last tribute. And I asked him to get more about it. And he's how he felt about it. He said, I was very saddened by that. I was a bit angry in some ways because I thought they were going to use a bit, maybe of the brewer house as a museum. I went up there during the time uh, that they were demolishing the place, a bit of lump in the old throat, Joel. You're looking at this poor old building and you see it, all the floors, you've got pictured in here. I can see all the floors and you say, oh, that's where I stored the bucket there when they had water fights. And I was getting wet. I mean, his interview was fantastic. He was laughing all the time and telling me about the water fights he used to have there. All officially condoned. It was just, it sounded like a fantastic place to work, even if you did get a bit wet. Okay. So when the buildings are abandoned, but not yet pulled down, um, they attract urban explorers. Um, and I was interested in this and I recorded it at the time and took screenshots. And then I went back to it when I was writing the book, just the photos weren't anything that I didn't already have and know about. But what was interesting in the meantime, between the site being up on the website and then the reaction, people had posted as former workers or the sons and daughters of former workers. So one guy works that writes, I joined the company. So this is on the website of an urban explorer. So he, uh, he says, I joined the company in summer of 1974, went to work at the boys ski, which is like the apprenticeship, uh, which meant two year period, you got to work for a month or two. Uh, at any one time, in one of the many departments in the brewery, what an eye opener it was for a still wet behind the ears boy of 16. And this was an employer, as an employer, it's fantastic. Good pay, free pension, free food, beer, brilliant sports club, social scene. Plus, the company had a real family build to it. It was a little world of its own. It's very sad to see the pictures now as they bring back so many great memories. Most, though, you remember the people and the characters you worked with and met. There were some really good stories to tell about this place people uh, in it, but I would be here for at least a week if I went into all of them. And this, I think, is a daughter, one word, but I can't help but think 
So she said, I kind of think of companies now they would benefit by taking the approach Guinness did to their employees and still make the profits as Guinness did. Although there were close to 1,500 people working there when I started, everyone seemed to know everyone else, and that included the directors. I remember going into the lift one day in the malt store, not long after I started, and the chap brought in, who I didn't know, but he asked me my name. Actually, this is okay. And then he went on to explain that he knew my father, who was still working at the brewery at the time. It turned out to be Edward Guinness, who was the one of the directors there, who I subsequently then interviewed. In the 90s, yeah. So really, just to, to wrap up, I think the Guinness site really was a privileged occasion for understanding work and organization in the 20th century. I think it brings up so many questions about how we think about work and embeddedness of work over the years. Um, but also, I think it throws light on how organizations looked after their workers and saw a kind of civic responsibility, especially in that long boom period, which is absolute gone now thing, but it also in the telling of this story and then the reflection on the destruction, it also elicits from people who work there and some whose family work there, a kind of reflection on what it was to work then. So I show this to my students and they can't quite believe what they're seeing because they don't get uh, for their lunch time. They don't get paid in time. They have to take time off. They don't get free. They don't get a canteen. They have to go in the back office if they're lucky. They don't have all these conditions. So it starts out a kind of what, one of the things I wanted to do with the book is ask being intervention to ask critical question about why we organize work the way we did, because in the past we used to organize it differently. And let's not forget um, some of these conditions emerge from the darkest periods in certainly Britain's history. So this was an age of austerity and they give workers those kind of conditions. So the question is why then and not now? So that's, that's the finish it. Um, this was the last commemorative brew that was sent down the line. And then on the back was a label with 80 workers names who'd been the last workers there. So you've gone from a, a company that employed 1500 people to one where you could get all the names of the people who worked on site, who worked for Guinness on the back of a bowl of Guinness. I'll stop there. Tim, that was unbelievable. The long boom, as you're using it, is uh, what many of us in the United States call the golden age of U.S. labor, uh, yeah. about 1945 through about 1975. Yeah. I think the argument that you're really making is that what Guinness did in terms of its work practices and other things and how it treated its workers was not necessarily, as we would call now, a road not taken. It was a road taken and discarded. But that is not to say, for example, that we're going to bring silver service back tomorrow. But there was a much more, if you want to call it compassionate capitalism. This was still a company that was vibrant and was doing fine within that period. But it then left certain practices and certain philosophies behind, as you said, as they began to more and more outsource and everything else that they were doing. So I think that the question is such a thing possible again, or I'm sure that there are examples within HR and labor relations settings, uh, frankly, where employers are not necessarily as, as bloodthirsty as uh, some that we might point to. So comments on that whole notion? I think it's a great question. And I, I would say, yeah, it's possible again, but it, it requires, I think it requires this kind of example 
to stand as a kind of, this was, this was a successful company that wanted to do right, not only by itself, by its workers and by its kind of stakeholders, although they wouldn't call it that. But what's interesting in the magazine, the editorials are fantastic for every one, every quarterly magazine starts with this page and a half. And they will talk about philosophies of work, William Morris, the classical scholars. They don't talk so much about Marx, but it's obvious what they're doing is trying to say, how do we solve the problem of worker alienation or strange mill? They don't necessarily use those terms, but how do we let people be the best they can be? And it's not people, I've had reactions to my work by saying, this is nostalgia or this was just a control mechanism. What I find looking through it is just how uncontrolling it was. What it was saying is we want to provide a platform or particularly the younger workers, they want them to do sport and they want them to take part in discussion, not to brainwash, but so they become independent. Thank you so much. See you all soon. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1940. That was the day that the federally mandated 40-hour work week went into effect for U.S. workers. The 40-hour week had been passed as part of the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. Making five days of eight hours work the national standard had long been a top goal for labor. For decades, union members organized, demonstrated, went on strike, and even died for the right to work eight hours. Labor argued that reducing the long, unregulated hours of toil was a matter of workers' health and safety. It was also a matter of dignity. A more reasonable work week would give workers the time to spend with their families, to pursue other interests, and to have a full life outside of the grinding schedule demanded by many bosses. Before the turn of the 20th century, the eight-hour day movement declared eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will as their motto. In 1886, nationwide rallies and strikes for eight hours took place on May 1st. Today, May Day is celebrated as a workers' holiday around the world in remembrance of that struggle. In 1888, the American Federation of Labor took up the cause and the Carpenters' Union became the standard bearer for the eight-hour day. Ten years later, the United Mine Workers Union members won the eight-hour workday. In 1916, the Adamson Act made eight hours the standard for interstate railroad workers. A decade after that, Ford Motor Company, a leader in U.S. industry, established the 40-hour workweek. Each of these victories were a step along the way to making the eight-hour day a reality and the law of the land. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app and even better if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please like us in your favorite podcast app. You can pass the show along and you can also leave a review that really helps to spread the word and helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Definitely worth checking out.
Thanks to John Beckett, Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lives, the lecture series sponsored by the Michigan Traditional Arts Program and the Labor Education Program at Michigan State University. We've got a link in the show notes, or you can email John at beckj, that's B-E-C-K-J, at msu.edu to get on the list to be notified of upcoming talks, many available via Zoom. Labor of History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history and see you next time.